Um, all right, well, we're going to be uh, getting into Mark 9, chapter, I'm sorry, Mark 9, verse 14 through 29 today. And so if you would go ahead and open up there this morning, I'm going to go ahead and read that passage. <clears throat> and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked, the father, asked his father, how long, has he been, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. God, I believe that you desire that we would hear you, that we would see you, that we would behold you this morning. And so as we begin to discuss this word and as we think upon it, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bring life to our bodies, that it would renew our mind, that it would revive our heart, that it would um, enlighten our eyes, and that, God, it might make our way pure in your sight. We ask that um, we would behold who Jesus is and that we might know what you ask of us very clearly this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, as we get into this story, last week we were in the transfigure, uh, looking at the Mount of Transfiguration, and so Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he ascended a mountain. And here they've descended down into the mountain. And so before we get into this text, um, I just want to ask a question, which is why did Mark put this story here? Um, originally, Mark would have been a manuscript. It would have been read as a single story. There would have been no chapters, no verses. Line after line, no punctuation. And so Mark, um, along with the other gospel writers, they wanted to communicate something to their readers. And they weren't just throwing in random stories that came to mind. They were trying to show something about who Jesus was. 
and what it truly means to follow Jesus. And so it's going to be helpful for us uh, to remember this um, as we come to this text in particular. And so why did Mark place this story here? It tells us um, why did he tell it in the way and in the sequence that he did. And um, according to John, uh, Jesus did thousands of miracles. In John 21, 25, it says, Now there, there are also many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So the question is, why did Mark put this miracle of a boy with an unclean spirit and a father who struggled in his faith to believe what Jesus could do? Why did he put that here? And um, so he put this miracle after the Mount of Transfiguration. And so if we look back to the first half of Mark, chapters 1 through 7, it is... Uh, the inauguration of Jesus. And so we have this announcement that the king has come. And so it's mostly about the identity of Jesus, that he is the son of God. He's the eternal king. He's the one who's come to renew all things. And he's performing lots of miracles in that first half. And then the second half is more about, about his mission, as Colton began to talk about last week. And so um, in this Last half, from chapter 8 all the way through 16, you actually don't see <clears throat> many miracles at all. Um, <clears throat> from Mark 8 through 16, there are actually only three miracles. There are the one we, let, we read a couple weeks ago, Blind Man at Bethsaida, in chapter 8, 20, verse 22. And then we have this healing of a boy with an unclean spirit in chapter 9. And then we have an, another after this in chapter 10, uh, another healing of a blind man named Bartimaeus. And so this first section or this unit, or in this section or unit of Mark from basically from chapter 8 to 10, um, it's bookended by two blind men being healed. And so in this section, I think Colton alluded to this, that, that what Mark is communicating here has something to do with sight, something to do with seeing, with seeing Jesus. And so um, the question really is, who will see Jesus? Who will truly see him? Um, Peter has confessed that he sees that Jesus is the Christ, but yet he doesn't fully understand because on one hand, he is ready to admit and confesses Jesus is the Christ, but then Jesus rebukes him. And so Peter sees, but he doesn't fully see and then, in the next chapter, what we're going to have is we're going to have children who do see and they understand. And Jesus says, to such as these belong the kingdom. And so, uh, then you have a ruler who doesn't see, a rich young ruler who doesn't see. And so the question is, do you have sight to see Jesus? Do I have sight to see who Jesus is? And so we have chapter 8 and 10 framed, um, these two stories framed between two miracles of the healing of blind man. And so right in the middle of these two miracles is this miracle. And this one is not so much about the identity of who is Christ. It is about that a little bit, but it's rather what does a person 
with sight who sees Jesus, what do they do? What is that person like? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And another interesting thing about this is, is how this particular miracle ends. When you look at the first half and you see miracle after miracle, um, this one ends differently than those miracles. And so I'm going to walk through those real quick. You can write these verses down. They're not going to be up on the screen, but I'll just read them. Um, the, the first miracle we see is in John 1.28. And it says that once, oh, I'm sorry, it's a healing of an unclean spirit in a synagogue. And it says that once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And actually, this sets a pattern. What we see is we see frequently throughout the first eight chap- seven chapters, we see miracles and then fame spreading. And there's amusement and wonder and marvel. And then there's a miracle and then there's marvel. And then there's wonder and it keeps continuing. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 33, it says, The whole city was gathered together at the door and, the heals, and, and Jesus heals many, uh, many and casts out demons. In Mark 1.45, we see the cleansing of a leper. It says, But he went out and he began to talk freely and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was, outside and des- but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And then he he- heals a paralytic. And it says, He rose immediately, he picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And then Jesus calms the storm. And they're filled with great fear, and, it, and they ask, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And then in Mark 5, 20, it says, uh, and he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So we see this pattern over and over happening. Jesus performs a miracle. People are astonished and amazed. And in, verse, uh, in chapter 7, verse 37, it says, Uh, They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So he does a miracle and people are amazed. And the question is, who is Jesus? In these first uh, seven chapters, this first half of Mark, the question is, who is Jesus? Who can do these kinds of things? And so all this really builds momentum until we get to where Jesus asks his disciples and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter's answer is, you are the Christ. And so then the focus of Mark begins to change. And in the second half of the book, we see uh, that the miracles have less to do with Jesus' identity and who he is, although it still has some to do with that. It has more to do with our discipleship and how we are to walk with Jesus to be his disciple. And in this story, notice how this story ends. It's not with crowds being amazed. It ends with a discussion with Jesus speaking to his disciples, speaking the word of God to them. So, so, um, so it ends differently, and, and so this, this along with that, that it's actually placed between these two chapters, is a clue that, that this miracle is more than just a miracle. It's actually an object lesson for 
the disciples to learn something about being a disciple. And so <clears throat> Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but faith here must have something more to do than just professing with the mouth. And Peter, James, and John went up on the mount and they saw Jesus transfigured by glory, in, in glory, and, but faith must be more than just acknowledging that Jesus has glory. And so um, this, this miracle reveals what is required for them to follow him. And in this text, uh, this text teaches us about the nature of faith, what it looks like, what it looks like to have faith in Jesus. And so what does it look like? Um, well, their, uh, faith is centered on Jesus. So go back to verse 14. I'm going to read verse 14 through 18 here. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So in this in this uh, passage right here, we see four groups or four, uh, yeah, four groups of people. We see disciples, we see the crowd, we see a father, and we see scribes. And each of them have a different focus. The, the disciples, um, they, got separate, they were separated from Jesus, and it doesn't take long before the disciples are quickly in trouble uh, and find themselves in a crisis where they have gotten themselves into hot water can, trying to do something they can't actually do. And so the disciples' inability to manifest the power that Jesus manifested brought about mo uh, probably mocking and ridicule from the scribes. And they're clueless about how their inadequacy to deal with evil and suffering in the world, um, and they're unable to cure this boy. And then you have the father in verse 17. And you imagine he's upset. Um, I mean, here he is, he's brought his only son to Jesus, and Jesus wasn't there, but the disciples were, and he, he asked that they would heal him, and they couldn't do it. And so he's got to be asking, well, well, Jesus, are you healer? I've heard all these amazing things about you. And then you have the crowd, and when they saw Jesus, they ran. Um, and they were excited to, and eager to see Jesus as he descended from the mountain, actually, it says it was a day later in the other Gospels. Uh, but many of them were really, um, they were excited for all the wrong reasons. Um, they were just wanting, a, they were just waiting around for the next miracle or the next event, kind of like chasing a celebrity, um, you know, seeing somebody famous, like Joey Landreth, the, one of the best, it's like, you don't know him, do you? Okay, oh, President Biden, <laughs> President Trump. You know, so they're just following the miracle from one sensational moment to the next. Um, and then you have the scribes. And in verse 14, it says they're, they're quarreling or they're arguing. And actually, that, that, verb, that verb there actually says they argued and continued to argue. 
And so um, they thought Jesus was, or they've got to be saying to the disciples, well, you, uh, you, you say that Jesus is some, a powerful rabbi, he's the Christ, but you're unable to even cast out a demon. What a bunch of powerless phonies. And so they probably see this moment as an opportunity to discredit the disciples and Jesus and focus on, on proving their own beliefs. And so we have these three groups, these four groups. I mean, the disciples, they're focused on what they can't do or what they can do. And then you got the father who's focused on the needs of his son. you got the crowd who's focused on uh, the, next, the next show. And then you've got the scribes um, who are more concerned about, they're focused on how right they are, how more right they are than the disciples or Jesus. And so none of these, none of these groups are focused on Jesus. And so I don't know if you identify with any of these people, but I would ask, do you, have, do you fall into any of these categories? Are any of these a snare for you? Do you find yourself caught up in the sensational things of the world? Because those things can so easily take our eyes off of Jesus. Um, we just have a, a tendency to focus on what we can't do, or we have a tendency to focus on our work, what we're not able to do, or what we're, what's not happening in our home life or in our family or in our personal life, in our personal growth. Um, and we get caught up in the despair of circumstances. And so we, we can't forget that, our, that the aim of our faith is not ourselves, it's not our circumstances. It's not the re- potential results we get from faith. It's our, not our pride, but true faith is always focused on Jesus. It is centered on Jesus. In verse 19, Jesus says in response to them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And who's he talking to here? Is he talking to the disciples? I mean, they're the ones who couldn't cast the demon out. <clears throat> um, I, uh, the disciples, he could be talking to the disciples, the crowd, the father, the, the scribes. And he says they're, they're faithless. Why? He says they're faithless because they're not focused on him. And he asked back-to-back rhetorical questions that express his weariness. And I think, quite frankly, his loneliness in the world. On the mountain where he just came from, Jesus is, um, is faced with the disciples' spiritual short-sightedness. They don't understand what the meaning of it is, and then he tells them he's going to suffer, and they, they can't understand that either. And Jesus faces, he's really facing their unbelief. And only Jesus knows this burden the heaviness that he carries as he is the only one genuine believer in the world, in a world filled with unbelief in him. And so Jesus questioned, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Here Jesus is in their midst, and they're distracted by desires, they're centered on themselves and their needs. 
And I have to ask myself, do I do this? Do you find yourself doing this? Jesus is in your midst, the divine presence of God, and you find something else to gaze at. So the question I think is, uh, are we more concerned about Jesus fixing our problems like the Father and the disciples? Or are we more concerned about fixing our eyes on Jesus? It's possible to have thoughts about Jesus, even right now, and yet still be filled with disbelief at who he is. And to live as if God isn't present. As if he doesn't exist. And so faith, faith in Jesus brings about rest. It brings about confidence and hope. <clears throat> and so we want to shift our eyes from anything else <clears throat> from him. I'm sorry, we want to shift our eyes from him. Or when we shift our eyes from him to anything else, we are faithless. <clears throat> The next um, thing we see in verse 20 through 26, we see that faith is given by God. It's not created by us. Notice how Jesus shifts this man's focus from the despair of his circumstances to himself. In verse 20, he says, "And And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Notice the way this man asked for help from Jesus, he says, if you can, if you can, Jesus, I've heard these amazing things about you. And in that statement, there lies unbelief. If you can, meaning I'm not sure there's a can't in there somewhere. And so he's talking to the son of man, the eternal king who's conquered um, who has all dominion and power and who spoke the very world into existence. And he's asking if you can. And so when we, there's another story that this question sounds very similar to. If you look back or just flip back to Mark 1 verse 40, when Jesus heals a leper and it says, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, if you will, you can make me clean. And he believed Jesus was willing. So the leper was asking the question, not was Jesus able, but is Jesus willing? This man is not, I guess he, not sure that this is better because he's not asking if Jesus is willing. He's asking if he's even able And so Jesus flips his doubt and his inability to believe back on him. He says 
if you can, all if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. In other words, Jesus is saying, what about you? Can you believe in me? Can you have faith? Now, some people, I think, take this text here, or this, this verse, where he says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And, and they misinterpret the verse. that they, they take it to mean that you can achieve anything if you just believe it. And so I think there's a popular notion out there that if you just believe it, you, you can have it. It becomes a reality. Um, if you can just think about it, meditate on it, then, then it's going to come true. Or if you pray it enough, like some kind of mantra, but that's not what Jesus is saying at all here. His faith doesn't work. Faith doesn't work. I don't mean it doesn't work. I mean it doesn't do any work. Faith doesn't have any power. Faith connects us to Christ. And Christ does the work. And that's why you only need Faith the size of a mustard seed. It's not with our mouth that we believe. Um, it's like um, if you, uh, we've got some guys that use tools here, right? And you're in your house and you have a tool, but it's not going to work by itself. You have to take something and plug it in, but you're too far away. And over there is the socket, right? And you've got to get to the outlet, so you go get a, extension cord or lithium battery, but extension cord, right? You plug it in, and then once you plug it into the power source, it works. That's what faith is. And so no matter what size it is, it bridges you to God. It connects our debilitating neediness to God's sufficiency. Our connects our helplessness to his omnipotence. And so what is Jesus doing here? Jesus puts this man in a position where he has to admit what he lacks. And he does the same with you and I. And what he lacks is true faith. That can't be willed into existence. Rather, it's given. And he makes a stunning declaration here that within each of us is a, a dueling reality that as much as we have true faith in Jesus, there's also a propensity for us to doubt. For doubt and faith to coexist. And so immediately the father of the child cried out in verse 24 and says, I believe, help my unbelief. In that statement, he expresses a reality that he does believe, but at the same time he admits to Jesus that he also has unbelief. And it's this admission of what we lack. Um, it's an admission of what we lack, and it's also an admission of what the one who lacks nothing can give to him. So, Augustine, who you've probably heard of, uh, wrote in his writings, Confessions, he said, grant what you command and command what you will. In other words, 
Um, you command me to love, so God grant me the ability to love. You command me to forgive, so grant me the ability to forgive. To be patient, so grant me the ability to be patient. You command me to have faith, so grant me the ability to have faith. But we, we first uh, must come to the place where, we'll, where we admit that we're lacking, that we do have doubt. And now, now, doubt is not the goal. Not, doubt is not the end game here. And so I think a lot of people want to take doubt and honesty and elevate doubt above faith. But I do believe uh, this father, he acted in faith in some part, didn't he? I mean, he at least showed up. He at least came with his child. He at least came to the disciples. He had heard about this Jesus and made the effort to show up. And so I think sometimes faith is mingled with doubt in our lives. And many times genuine faith is found by admitting the doubt that surrounds it. I mean, when I think about who I believe God to be or who you believe, you believe God is good, right? God is good but why would he take somebody I love so much from me? I believe God is merciful and he's forgiving, but why do I feel so unclean? I believe that God is kind and merciful, but why would he allow a person to hurt me like that? I believe that the Bible is God's word. It's authoritative, but there are some things that are difficult for me to believe. I'm, I believe that God wants to heal my marriage, but I don't understand how he can do that. And so in this moment, this man struggles to show true, genuine faith. Um, because, he's not, uh, because he not only admits his doubt, he asks for help from the one that can uh, fill what he lacks. Now, Augustine wrote about faith. He said, now, if faith is simply a free will and is not given by God, why do we pray for those who will not believe that they may believe? I'm sorry, how do we pray for those who, do, who will not believe that they may believe? This it would be absolutely useless to do unless we believe that Almighty God is able to, able to turn to belief wills that are perverse and opposed to faith. And so this man says, I believe, help my unbelief. In verse 25, uh, <clears throat> it says, when, the, when the, Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. You know, sometimes you call on God in genuine faith. And it seems like everything else around you begins to fall apart. Imagine you're in the Father's place in this moment and you're crying out and everything actually gets worse. 
You admit your doubt. You ask for help. And then it's like the boy's dead. And so genuine faith doesn't move away. It doesn't shift its focus. It doesn't move away from the rock that it stands on. And so I see the Father saying, God, I'm really struggling to believe. I need your help. Um, You can admit your doubt, but you also cling to him in the same moment. And so compare that story to in Mark 5, verse 35 through 36, where we see Jairus' daughter. Um, It says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. So Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, Trust me. Keep your eyes on me. And in the moment when hope seems to be lost, and when this man's son appears to dead, um, Jesus takes him by the hand in verse 27 and lifts him up and he arose. That translation actually could um, be, and Jesus took him by the hand and rose him and he resurrected. Would be one way to translate it. Jesus chose to grant this man's request. So a little side note here. Um, it is possible to have genuine faith to make a request and then that request not for it, God to deny it. Um, I think it's safe to assume that there were many people that Jesus didn't hear heal in this time. So why would he choose to heal this boy? There could be many answers to that question and we'll never know them all. Just like you'll never know why he's chosen to allow you to go through the suffering that you go through we must remember the purpose of this text here. You know, you remember Jesus was in the garden and he prayed a humanly impossible prayer, didn't he? Oh, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Or if you can take this cup from me. Yet yeah, not my will, but thine be done. And so it's possible to make an earnest, genuinely faith-filled request and yet still God deny it. Um, so we ask again, why did he choose to heal this boy? And so through, the, through this miracle, Jesus is teaching his disciples to rely on him and not themselves. Look in verse 28 through 29. It says, and when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So Mark places this moment here to teach, a, to teach them that prayer is an, ex, uh, an expression of reliance and worship. But why did they fail earlier in casting out the demon? You consider their success previously when they had been, um, they'd been confused and they, they were surprised when they, were, when they failed to be able to help the boy. And after all, Jesus commissioned them to do that very thing that they were trying to do. In Mark 6, verse 7, it says, Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits. In Mark 6, 13, 
It says, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And in Mark 6.30, it says they returned to Jesus and they told him all they had done and taught. So their, their failure reflected not only themselves, but also Jesus. And it brought, um, I think it brought doubt upon their master and their mission. And so why couldn't they cast out the demon? And I think the question, their, their question that they ask, why couldn't we cast it out? It actually reveals their inac- the inadequacy of their strength and their abilities. We did it before. We'll just do it again. That, that's their attitude. Well, we've done that. Let's just go. We know how to do that. So they tried to cast the demon out without prayer. And for the same reason they couldn't understand, or uh, the same reason they couldn't cast it out, is actually the same reason they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They couldn't see how weak and proud they were. Their view of themselves was far too high, and their view of God was far too low. And so they underestimated the power of evil in the world, but also in themselves. And prayer is an admission of what we lack. It's, and it's a recognition that God lacks nothing. And we can do nothing of eternal value or anything that really matters in this life without God. And it, it is this reality that really should drive us to God for help. Um, in fact, our very awareness that we're insufficient is a gift from God um, because, because it ought to drive us to him. Our weakness should drive me, my weakness should drive me to his strength. My impotence should drive me to his omnipotence. My limitations and abilities should drive me to his infinite resourcefulness. My lack should drive me to his abundance. You know, last week, Colton spoke of the need for a tabernacle to separate man from God and the divine so that man wouldn't die and be consumed in the presence of God and his holiness and his glory. And that separation leaves man no access to the power and presence of God. And as we, as we look at the, uh, the story from last week, the Mount of Transfiguration, um, if we contrast these two stories that we have here, there's actually an amazing contrast. It's up on the mountain, they see Jesus transfigured, and then in the valley, you can go ahead and put those slides up, um, the first one, and, and then they descend, and Jesus leads them down into the valley. And on the mountain... Um, Jesus, on the mountaintop, um, as Jesus spoke of his exodus and ascension, he, um, sorry, let me, let me back up. Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus spoke of his exodus and his, his ascension back to his former glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. But then here in the valley, where they descended into, back into darkness, back into the world, a world filled with evil and unbelief. You see that in a valley, they descended back into the darkness. 
And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, you have a kingdom of light that's revealed, and it emanates from glory. And you have here, down here, a kingdom of darkness and tyranny. And then on the Mount, you see the sun emanating radiant glory. And then down here, we see a sun demonized by the domain of darkness. On the mountain, we see a father is honored in his only son. And down here, we see a a father is appalled by his only son. On the mountain, we see the disciples lack understanding, but down here, the disciples lack power. We see on the mountain with Jesus, they're confused. The disciples are confused, but down here, the disciples are defeated. Up on the mountain, they're given a glimpse and an insight into the future, and down here, they're given an insight about faith and what truly, what it truly means to have genuine faith. Up on the mountain of transfiguration, they see the display of divine power. And down here, you see a need for human prayer in order to access that power. So as I said a minute ago, there there is a separation where there's a need for us to access this power. And it's on the mountain that Peter, James, and John beheld the fullness of God's presence as they as Jesus was enveloped with love and light of his Father and emanating, beaming glory. And, but now they've descended into the world again. And in the future, when Jesus ascends to heaven, how are they to access and make their way to God's presence? How are they to do that now? And on the mountain, through the Spirit, um, The Spirit was strengthening Jesus to fulfill his purpose, the very purpose for which he came. That is to endure infinite suffering in order that he would overcome all evil. And so in the same way, those who in faith humble themselves in prayer and reliance on God. God empowers us to overcome evil and the suffering that we face in this life and fulfill his divine purposes in our life. John Newton wrote these words, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. In Mark 20, I'm sorry, Mark 11, verse 24, Jesus tells the disciples, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So as we close today, I would ask you, what have you been relying on? Who have you been relying on this week? Who are you relying on this morning? What, what doubts do you have that you're facing? And where, where has God given you a faith that's mingled with those doubts? 
you know that God's purpose is going to be fulfilled in your life, but you're struggling. How is God leading you this morning to respond to this this thought that we need to wholeheartedly cast ourselves upon God in prayer? So Jesus is teaching his disciples about the nature of faith, and faith is a full reliance on him. And I heard somebody recently, I can't remember the quote, but they said, um, you've done nothing until you have prayed. So I would ask this morning, where... um, Where do you need God's abundance? Where do you need his power? How? And also, if you are walking in God's abundance and you're seeing that in your life, how can you share that with somebody else who also is in need and needs that encouragement? 